Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church. And we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. Good morning, everyone. So great to see you all here today. And it's great to be on my feet. Those of you in the church who have not been well, uh, you have my sympathies. I haven't been sick for years, so this particular flu has really knocked me. I've been in bed a lot, but uh, the Lord has been kind, and He's put me here today. So let's, uh, let's open the Word of God and look at something that has been on my heart for some time. Uh, a few years ago, I read a book by Heath Lambert. And he was looking at the history of the biblical counseling movement after Adams. And Adams was sort of called the father of the biblical counseling movement. But in one of those chapters, he addresses one of the issues, one of the areas in which the biblical counseling movement needs to change, you know, to develop. And the development is in this very thing that I'm going to open up for you today, because if you've been in biblical counseling or if you've done any biblical counseling you'll know that this is one area where there's a lot of confusion so hopefully today there's going to be real clarity i'm hoping that it's going to come uh, home in such a way that it seems really obvious and we'll say why didn't i see this before but let's ask the question (coughs) we start with this question what is stopping true progress in your life? You know, what is stopping you from moving forward and making progress? What is keeping you locked in a position uh, where you feel you're in a stalemate and you can't move forward? What's, what's chaining you up like this, this elephant in the picture? I couldn't find a better picture to put in the presentation. And this animal with massive power, but is, is something stopping him from moving? What's stopping you from moving? And if we, if we look through the, the text of Scripture, we discover there's one big issue that stops every single one of us from moving forward on a daily basis. And you've got to say to yourself, well, you know, I wish I'd known that because long ago I could have started progressing. So let's have a look at what this is. What the Bible shows us is the thing that stops us from moving forward and from progressing. The first thing you notice is that as you look at Lambert's chapter, he identifies this whole thing as the sinful, self-exalting heart. Inside of you and I is a heart that wants you and I, ourselves, to be number one. And if I can't be number one, I'm going to respond in all kinds of unpleasant ways in order to get what I want. And I'm going to respond in all kinds of unpleasant ways. Isaiah 44 there, and you notice 
texts in the Old Testament and then a few in the New Testament to show just on a surface level what the Bible is talking about. Isaiah 44, verse 9 to 20, it's a long text, I'm not going to read the whole thing. But basically what's happening there is God is mocking the idolater for setting up an idol that just cannot possibly do anything to help him. So he's sitting there, he says in verse 1, All who make idols are nothing, and the things that they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. (coughs) They are ignorant to their own shame. He who shapes a god and casts an idol, which can profit him nothing. It's like there's a guy who's busy, if you look from verse 11 to verse 15 in that text, he, he sort of describes the picture well of this guy going into his workshop, you know, with his hammer and his chisel and, you know, with the, all of, you know, getting his lines right and carving this statue. And it's, it's pretty graphic the way the guy doesn't sleep, you know, he, he misses out on meals because he's working so hard on his idol and he, he gets hungry and he's thirsty and he loses his strength and he, he doesn't drink any water and he begins to grow faint because he's busy working on his idol. This is an important thing to him. And then God mocks him. In verse 16, he says, Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and he eats his full. He also warms himself by it and he says, Ah, I'm warm. I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god. He's idle. He bows down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Save me. You are my god. You can imagine... You know, God is sort of expressing a sense of humor. He's saying, how ridiculous is this? Guy goes and cuts down a tree, chops the log in half. The half he chops up and throws in the fire, and the other half he takes it and he makes a God out of it. So God is pretty much ridiculing the whole concept of idolatry. Verse 18, he says, they know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds so closed that they cannot understand. And just the last two verses are so, they're so, so sobering. As you read these two verses, we should stop and say, I wonder if this is me. Verse 19, no one stops to think. No one has knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Verse 20 says, he feeds on ashes, a deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Bizarre, hey? Amazing how many things we cling to for, for help just to get through the next hour. I mean, how many, how many of us, I mean, I've never smoked, I don't know what this is like, I mean, we've got our own vices, don't we? How many of us know what it's like to be able to pick up a cigarette and say, Oh, please save me from this hour. This next hour is going to be tough. I need you. I need you. <laughs> you know, or a drink, a cup of coffee maybe. I need you <laughs> to get me through this next hour. I've had a couple of cups of coffee this week to get me through sermon prep, you know, just to stay awake during the day because I've been feeling so zonked. But this is the idolater. That's his whole life. He's just going from one thing to the next. I need you. I need this. I need this in order to get me through this next day. And he puts all of his effort into his idol. And then 
Another picture similar, but you know, a little bit different, is in Jeremiah 44, verse 16 to 18, where you've got the same concept, idolatry, where it's not focusing on the thing, but it's focusing on the attitude behind idolatry. What is this idolatry saying? It is defiant. It's self-centered. And idolatry is all about the thing that I get. What am I going to get out of life? What is the thing that I'm going to achieve out of this? And in Jeremiah 44, 16 to 18, there's this terrible, terrible text where God confronts his people before they are taken into exile. And he, and he warns them to stop worshipping to the, this queen of heaven. Now, there's this sort of group of them worshipping to the queen of heaven and their wives are making cakes for the queen of heaven and they're offering sacrifices to the queen of heaven. And God himself comes to them and says, you need to stop worshipping to the, you know, sacrificing to the queen of heaven. And you would think that if God himself comes and speaks to them, they would say, oh yeah, you know, that's, that's enough warning for me. But no, idolatry is so stupid that God himself can come to these people and in verse 16, they say, we will not listen to the message you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord. We will certainly do everything we said we, did, we would. We will burn incense to the queen of heaven and will pour out our drink offerings to her just as we and our fathers, our kings and officials did in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. At that time, we had plenty of food and we were well off and we suffered no harm. But ever since we stopped burning incense to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have had nothing and have been perishing by sword and famine. What's at the heart of this idolatry? We're going to keep worshipping to the Queen of Heaven because then we get what we want. <coughs> How sad it is when our religion is reduced to what I get. I, let's imagine somebody coming in here off the street and he's in desperate need. I really, my business is going down. I need to do something about it. I come to this church. I come and I worship here at this church for a period of time. Doesn't help. My business keeps going down. Let me try another church. Let me go somewhere else. Maybe there's more power that side. And it's sad that that's the way people think. We think that we can use God in order to get God to serve us and to achieve the things in our lives for us that we want to achieve what is at the heart of this it's a sinful self-exalting heart the first picture of the idolater working hard to create his idol he's like i'm going to create this idol because this idol is going to give me what i want the second picture is of the attitude behind that almost as if when god comes and says lay that thing aside and you say, I won't because I can see, according to my own experimentation, since I started this series of rituals, I'm getting the things that I want. So God can just get lost. You know, who cares who God is? You know, this is the way, this is my religion in which I'm getting what I want. That's sad, man. It's absolutely terrible that idolatry reduces beings made in the image of God to this kind of slavery. You know, like that elephant with a chain around his ankle. This stops people from moving forward. This is, this is the, a prison that you and I can get ourselves locked into. Then there's a third picture in the Old Testament, and that's the picture of Hosea. We know, we know the story of Hosea well, I'm sure. So Hosea shows not only 
how stupid idolatry is and how blind it makes people. And also that idolatry has a, a self def, it's a, it's a self-seeking defiance about it. That I will do this, doesn't matter who tells me, even God. This shows that sin is irrational. And here in, in Hosea, we have the story of a prophet who married a prostitute at God's command. And she wanders away from him. And in verse 5 of chapter 2, it says, Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. So there's, there's the, the woman that this prophet has married. And she goes out and she does what she knows best. She goes out and prostitutes herself. And she says, the reason I'm prostituting myself is because my lovers that I go to, they give me everything I want. But notice in verse 8, God says, she has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine, the oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her nakedness. And here she goes out and she thinks, this is the way in which I'm getting what I want. But she hasn't acknowledged, she hasn't looked at God and thought, oh, you know, this is this prophet and, and the prostitute are meant to be a picture of God and his people Israel. And they haven't looked at God and said, wow, God has given us all the things that we want. And now day after day, instead of worshipping God, they are worshipping false gods. They're worshipping the gods of the nations. And their, their whole nation is just falling into a state of immobility. They've stopped moving forward. They're not worshipping God anymore. And their lives are becoming smaller and smaller and about them. And they're just not moving anymore. They, they stopped progressing. They stopped in the great mission that God had given them to reach out to the nations with the God of the universe. And instead they absorbed all of the gods of the nations and they just became like everybody else. They were no longer unique. Christians are meant to be unique, aren't we? We have a treasure in our jars of clay. As we move among other people, we have something shiny and something beautiful to share with other people. So what hindered Israel from progress? Basically, they had a list of things that they wanted. And it didn't matter whether they got those things from God or whether they got them from other gods. Their affections were captured by the things that they wanted rather than by God himself. That's at the heart of idolatry, isn't it? It's a sinful, self-exalting heart. It's a heart that says, I will get what I want. I will be who I want to be. And I will be who I want to be now, regardless of what God says. And then in the New Testament, we see the same problem. Even though the New Testament doesn't mention the word idolatry often, it's not as prolific as in the Old Testament, but the same idea, <coughs> same idea is present in the New Testament. So, for example, we look at Matthew 22, verse 37 to 40, where we see Jesus reducing the essence of the whole law of Moses down to two axioms. Remember when he said these are the two greatest commands, uh, he says, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And verse 38 says, and this is the first and greatest command and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. 
So when the Lord Jesus teaches that, with all of the complexity that the Pharisees brought into the law of God, now Jesus simplifies it and he says, let me tell you, basically, a whole drive of the law is if you can love God, the person of God, and you can love your neighbor, you can demonstrate that in your, life, in your lifestyle, you've kept the law. If you're doing that, if you're loving God and you're loving your neighbor, you don't need to, to wonder what's below that line of restrictions. You know, the law is, is a line of restriction that is below that level. If you're loving God and you're loving your neighbor, you can be quite sure that you're obeying the law of God. And that just shows how little us as human beings obey the law of God because so many times we feel guilty in our interactions with other people and we know that we've, we've uh, broken the basic rule to love God and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So Jesus reduces every sin to a failure to love God or to love your neighbor. And of course, on the other side, if you turn that logic around, that means that every sin is also a sin of loving yourself more than you love God or love your neighbor. And that's, and that's pretty scary. When I look in the mirror and I look at myself and I say, do you love God more than you love yourself? And, and as much as I'm depraved, it's bizarre that I'll look at myself in the mirror and I'll discover that there's more self-love in myself than there's love for God and my neighbor. Now we could, we could speak, that's a whole sermon on its own we could talk about, but if you look at James, another text in the New Testament that speaks about it, James chapter 4, you notice that people, God re- reaffirms this, through James, uh, what Jesus said in Matthew 22, he reaffirms what he said, and he shows that people are in love with somebody other than God and their neighbor. And that person is themselves. Remember what James says, he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You see how much self is in that text. My desires that fight, they battle inside of me. And I'm willing to respond to another human being in a hostile way because I feel that my desires are not being met. The things that I want out of people I'm not getting. What a diabolical thing. Beings made in the image of God, and I want something so badly, I'm willing to sin against God and that person in order to get what I want. That's what's stopping me from progressing. That's what's stopping you from progressing. It's a sinful, self-exalting heart. I must be number one. What a sad reality that is. When we contrast this to the Lord Jesus Christ and His humility in Philippians 2 verses 4 to 8, we see a completely different picture. In Philippians 2, verse 4 to 8, we read, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why would Paul even say that? Why would he say that we must stop looking at our, towards our own interests and looking at the interests of others? Because Jesus is teaching to love God and to love your neighbor is to obey the law of God. So if Paul is telling us to do that, it's obvious that it comes naturally to us to look at our own interests <coughs> and not to the interests of other people. 
He says in verse 5, Your attitude should be the same of that of, as, same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And when we look at Jesus, you suddenly realize what a different caliber of person this is. As a man, the God-man, he comes into the world. And the only one who deserves worship, he shuns worship. And he walks around as an ordinary man in this world. He gets treated as a slave. And he gets treated as a criminal. And at no point does the Lord Jesus Christ stop this, almost like Paul, you know, when he was going to be beaten. And he said to them, is it legal to flog a Roman citizen who has not yet been found guilty? And Jesus hasn't been found guilty. And he goes down and he's crucified. So he serves, in contrast to us, he serves his father's interests. He loves his father. He serves the interests of other human beings. And not human beings who are his equals. Human beings who are way inferior to him in every way. He serves people that you and I would look at and we would say, no, this person doesn't deserve to be served. You know, anybody other than ourselves. And Jesus serves even his enemies. And thirdly, he does that above his own interests. If anyone's interests should have been served in this world, it should have been his, uh, the God-man. So while Jesus deserved to be honored, Jesus didn't seek honor. And you and I, in contrast, we don't deserve honor, but we relentlessly seek it. We relentlessly want to be thought of well in other people's minds. We want to be treated well by other people. And this is the thing that is stopping us. This is the thing that's hindering us in our lives. Look at the massive success of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious God-man, the universal success, the most successful human being this world has ever seen. And we look at us in our lives stifled and slowed down and hobbled by our own self-seeking. You and I want our neighbors and even God to serve us. We don't want to serve them. In fact, evidence of that is our willingness to try to manipulate other people into getting them to serve us and trying to manipulate God into getting God to try and serve us and to give us the things that we want. <coughs> you know, when we look at Isaiah 44 and we see that man, you know, making his idol, we can see how ridiculous that looks, isn't it? And that's exactly what God is saying. It's so ridiculous for a man to be trying to twist the arm of God to get God to do what that man wants him to do. It's a bizarre, it's a bizarre scene that we're involved in. We like to determine what is right for us rather than to let God determine what is right for us. Like in the Garden of Eden, for example, where we have Adam and Eve. And God tells them one thing, Satan tells them another thing, and they decide Who's, who's telling them what's best for them? And they choose the wrong way. So apart from a work of grace in your heart, this is exactly who you are, and it stops you from progressing because this really is an irrational pursuit. 
It's irrational to try and live in a world and try and get the things that I want rather than the things that God wants for me. Here's a brilliant quote from A.W. Tozer. He says, Because man is born a rebel, he is unaware that he is one. His constant, constant assertion of self, as far as he thinks of it at all, appears to him a perfectly normal thing. He is willing to share himself, sometimes even sacrifice himself, for a desired end, but never to dethrone himself. No matter how far down the scale of social acceptance he may slide, he is still in his own eyes a king on a throne, and no one, not even God, can take that throne from him. Now, I don't know what you think about that quote, but when I read that quote the first time, it really hit me right between the eyes, and I realized, God, that's me. doesn't matter how far down the scale of social acceptance I might slide. I still think I'm a king, and even God can't take that throne away from me. You know, I'm always right. I must always be seen as prominent and accepted, and I must be liked. People mustn't say negative things about me. You know, people mustn't spread uh, false reports about me, gossip about me. I mean, who do I think I am that everything around me should be the way I want it? It's bizarre. So how do we respond to this now that we've discovered what Scripture teaches about this sinful, self-exalting heart? How do we normally respond to this? You know, when I discover that I as a king on my throne am not getting what I want from a particular individual or from God or maybe a group of individuals, how do I normally respond some of the ways that you and I respond when we don't get the things that we want, the, the money or the recognition or the compassion or the, the appreciation we think other people owe us, one way is fretting and plotting. You might begin to worry and worry and worry about um, why would that person say something like that about me? Or why would they just suddenly turn away from me? You know, we ha used to have such a good relationship and now they don't seem to like, what was, what's wrong? You can spend nights fretting and even plotting. You might be worried and this, this is something that, that works like clockwork. I see this so often. Is somebody worrying about somebody else's sin? And, and sometimes I wonder, I wonder why somebody comes to me and they're so worried about the sin of another person, but they can't even see their own sin. They're not that worried about their own sins. And at the heart of that is often because somebody else's sin has caused them some distress. You know, it's caused them to look bad or it's taken away something from them that they wanted. And it's like, you know, how could that person talk like that? I'm, I'm so worried about that person. Do you think I should go and confront them? And then I've, I find out, you know, whether there's something going on beyond just their concern about that person's sin. Because it's very unusual for somebody to lose sleep at night over somebody else's sin if it's not affecting you. Isn't that true? I mean, how many, if you just sit and you think about the people in this church, how many people in this church cause you sleepless nights because you think they might be wandering into sin if that sin's not affecting you personally? If it's not making you look bad or taking something away from your life or your reputation. I think if we're honest, 
we probably realize that this is, this is normally what's happening. We're only worried about someone else's sin if it's affecting me. And then I spend sleepless nights. Sure, what if he tells this person? You know, what if that happens? If that guy tells this person, there's a whole chain of events, and then I lose out badly in public. So fretting and plotting, maybe you respond by self-punishment because you're anxious. You sit awake at night and you worry and you worry and you worry or you become depressed or despondent and you can't move forward. You, you can't function confidently because you're like, oh, this is, this is too bad. I can't move forward after this. This is, this is terrible. What about punishing others with angry outbursts or slow revenge plots? You know, when I get home, I'm going to give this guy a piece of my mind. <laughs> you know, just seizing on your way home because you're going to see somebody, they said something to you, they sent you a WhatsApp that, you know, you didn't like, and you, you're really cooking up a storm on the way home. And when you see this guy, you know, as soon as you see him, this is what you're going to tell him. Angry outbursts. I mean, in married life, eh, how many times does this happen when, when you get so familiar with your wife or your husband that your words become free and you, you feel you can rebuke them easily? What about slinking off into private sinful delights where you are in control and you can just avoid the whole situation, pretend it didn't happen, you eat, 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 drink, 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 go watch porn? You know, just like go into your own world and drown your sorrows in whatever your own personal sin is. Different ways of dealing with the sinful, self-exalting heart not getting what it wants. Terrible, terrible reality. And it's so true, man. When I look at this picture, I realize this is me. This is how I am. And I want to escape this. I want to break out of this. I want to move away from this terrible, enslaving way of living. It's a painful way of living, and it will never bring you the paradise that you're looking for. Rather, this ends in the misery of drug or porn or sexual addiction or suicidal or murderous thinking, vomiting up food to maintain appearances, gambling, drinking, fight, fighting, endless other worlds of misery. The misery just goes on and on. Everybody has their own form of misery that they fall into because the sinful, self-exalting heart wants to be on top. And every time I don't get the thing that I want, my life becomes a bizarre mess of sin. Remember also that as we, as we look at our, our perceived rights being denied, when I think I deserve this, I'm a king on a throne, and people around me... Do, you know, people around me owe me respect or they owe me compassion or they owe me something or other that I think they owe me. When I don't get that, one of the most prominent um, sort of umbrella phenomena you could put these responses under is the response of anger. Whether it's the response of explosive anger or whether it's a slow, um, slow burn under the surface, you know, a bitterness or a resentment. Um, anger is definitely a very, very common response to not getting what I want. And remember, anger is not something. <coughs> anger is not something that you have. 
Anger is something that you do in response to not getting what you want. And I think that when we, we, when we get this picture that anger is building up, it's something that's living inside of me and that is building up and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, as long as we see that as a, a separate entity living inside of us and it has to be dealt with, the, the longer we're going to put off the moment of realizing, actually, this is not something that's inside of me. This is something I'm doing. This is a deliberate way in which I'm responding to not getting what I want. Perceived rights. And I want to acknowledge that, yes, there are unspeakable miseries and pain in living in this fallen world. We have so many things like abuse. We have ruined families. I mean, half of our church knows what it's like to live maybe more in, in a ruined family. Angry fathers, abandonment, disappointment in expectations, being denied your perceived rights, demands at work, in society or sinful cultural trends that drive you in directions that you don't want to go, disease, injuries, side effects from drugs and, and poor nutrition, you know, the life is full of all kinds of miseries. But one thing that we need to understand from what God is saying in these texts is that, that none of these things define who you are and none of them push you into a state of anger inevitably. None of these things make us a victim. It doesn't mean that because I suffer in this way that I need to become, I have to become, I've got no alternative but to become an angry person. These things don't make me angry. Anger is a response to these painful situations where I'm obviously not getting what I want. What destroys your progress is not these terrible realities, but convincing yourself that these realities force you to be an angry person. Anger says, I want what I want when I want it, even if it belongs to somebody else. And if you deny me my wants, I will be hostile toward you. Do you want something so badly that you are willing to manipulate or nag or pressure or guilt trip people into getting what you want? You know, one of the most common things that I hear in this regard is this phrase, you hurt me. You know, I feel hurt. And what does that mean inside of a biblical um, framework of reconciliation? Well, basically what it is saying is that I have something against you. You've hurt me, and now I'm going to hold you. This is, I'm going to use this as a phrase of blackmail until I come to the point where I feel pacified by all of the kind of reparations that you've done to make me feel better. How do we know when a hurt person is not going to feel hurt anymore? Well, they might tell you. They might say, okay, well, it's all right now. And then you've, you know, you've brought all of your rituals forward in order to pacify that person. You know, you've spoken nicely to them. You've bowed down and you've scraped and you've done everything you can to pacify that person. And then finally they come to you and they say, okay, I feel better now. Like a king or a queen, they bend down from their throne and they say, okay, rise, peasant. You know, you've, you've appeased me. And... Like John Piper, he wrote a blog about this a few years ago, and I read that, and I thought, man, this is so excellent. This, this phrase, you've hurt me, it doesn't mean that the person, if, if I feel hurt, it doesn't mean that you are guilty of hurting me, does it? It doesn't automatically mean I've sinned against you if you feel hurt by me, does it? 
No, it's, it's, a simple, it's a simple description of how I've responded to something that you've done. I don't like the way you did that, so I'm going to tell you I feel hurt by you, and then you're going to have to do a lot of stuff. You're going to have to do a lot of repair work until I acknowledge that I'm no longer hurt. And it's funny how often those hurt things can come up and down. They can come back again out of the grave. So if we use a biblical process of peacemaking or reconciliation, we don't ever end up in a situation where somebody can blackmail you with their, their level of hurtness. And then, you know, they, they have the control over whether you are in their, you know, back in their, their sweet spot or not. That's a way of manipulating people into getting what you want. You want people to dance around you and respect you and to make you feel good. Therefore, you can use these devices in order to control the people around you with, with the way you, you speak to them. Are you willing to attack people or separate yourself from them when they do, don't do what you want them to do or how you want them to do it or when you want them to do it? Well, I'm not speaking to you. You know, if you're going to be like that, then I'm not talking to you anymore. I mean, that's a way. Isn't that an evidence of the sinful, self-exalting heart? You know, if you don't speak to me the way I want you to speak to me, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. And you put pressure on that person and they come back, please, man, please. Um, and when you've groveled enough, then okay, and I'll talk to you again. That's sad, man. It's so sad that we treat each other in this way. This is the thing that's stopping you and I from progressing. And it's ruining our lives. We can't even see that we're destroying ourselves. By trying to get ahead instead of being like the Lord Jesus Christ who in Philippians 2 who comes into this world and he's the only one who deserves to be served and yet he comes in as a slave as a servant and he serves and serves and serves selflessly and he gives his own life so thirdly now that we've seen the key issue the sinful self-exalting heart and we've seen Responses and consequences, the way in which we normally respond to not getting the things that we want and uh, the consequences that come from that. Let's have a look just for a moment on how we can begin to turn away from, from this terribly destructive and immobilizing uh, way of living, this, this heart state. The first, of course, is to identify the source of all of this trouble, the source of your anger, you know, the, the source of all of these negative emotions that are driving you when you rub shoulders with other people. And the source is the sinful, self-exalting heart. I'm not getting what I want, and that's why I'm treating the people around me in the way I am. One of the ways that's really helpful to do this, of course, there, there are a lot of ways to do it, but this is just the one way I've chosen for today, is to, is to journal your incidents of anger in your life. You know, begin to just keep a diary of incidents when you get angry. And, and often when I tell people this, I say to them, just keep a journal of every time this or that happens. You know, when you get this strong emotion, just write it down. Uh, of course, when you're angry, you, you don't feel like writing it down. But afterwards, when you're not angry anymore, then that's the time to pick up your journal and say, okay, what happened? And you describe the situation in your journal. You, you describe who you were talking to, you know, what was happening, where it was happening, and when it was happening, you know, all of those details. You just write down the basic facts about when you became angry. You write down what you did, you know, your behavior, what you said, 
and how you felt at the time, you know, more than I felt angry. You know, you can, you can expand on that a little bit in your journal. And then you can, you can explain your beliefs and your motives. You know, what did you want that you didn't get? You know, what perceived rights do you believe were denied you at that time? And then you can, in your journal at that point, you can write down, if God was speaking to me at that point while I was busy losing it at that time, how would God have instructed me to respond in that situation? How would God want me to respond differently in that situation? And that is the start of progress. To identify the core of this issue is in the sinful, self-exalting heart. And to say to yourself, you know, how did this whole thing happen? And God convicts you of sin through that. You suddenly realize, oh man, you know, you see, I did exactly the same thing again. <coughs> I wanted something so badly that I was willing to sin against the people around me and God in order to get it. And I was willing to sin if I didn't get it. And I did. And repent of those things. Repent both of those behavior and heart sins. Come to God and say, God, forgive me for being the fool in Isaiah 44 and the fools in Jeremiah chapter 44 and the, and the fool in Hosea 2 that I de so desperately wanted the things, God, that you hated that I was willing to sin against you in order to get them. And you ask God to forgive you for those sins the behavior sins and the heart sins. And if you have to go to somebody else, if you've had an outburst against somebody else, or if you've tried to manipulate somebody else, you can go to them and you can say, forgive me. There was something I wanted so badly that I thought I had the right to receive from you and I didn't get it, so I responded to you in a sinful way. Will you forgive me for that? And you might be surprised at what a beautiful new relationship might start when you do that with somebody for the first time. I've had a couple of incidents in my life where either somebody has come to me and confessed the sin to me and asked me to forgive them, and I've had to go to other people and confess sins to them and ask them to forgive me. And I've been surprised. Before, you, before that happens, you might think to yourself, yo, this is going to be embarrassing. This is going to be very, very hard to do. And you think this person's never going to trust me again. But completely the opposite is true. When I've had those experiences, it has been the start of a beautiful new relationship with those people. You know, suddenly there's, there's a relationship that develops where you, where you both understand that you're both sinners and you both fail, but you're willing to receive each other as such. And that is beautiful. I tell you, I've, I, I absolutely love God's way of peacemaking because it doesn't just deal with a situation then. It helps to carry you forward in a beautiful new relationship. So repent of both your behavior and your heart sins and then deliberately focus your thinking on the good God, his grace, his provision, his promises in Christ. You know, like the, like the Hosea chapter that we read earlier on, chapter 2, we notice the prostitute goes out and she finds these lovers who give her certain things, but she doesn't realize that her husband is the one who's been providing for, for her all this time. He's been the good husband. He's been giving her way more than she got from all of those other men that she was sleeping with. And as God with Israel, he'd been giving them so much stuff. I mean, you just look at the history of Israel and you see how good God was to them. And to, to neutralize a sinful, self-exalting heart, we need to look and see what God has already given us.
what a huge blessing God has poured out on us just in a brand new day and just in life and strength and health. Never mind eternal prospects, the glory of seeing the coming Christ. And then it's so helpful to find a fellow Christian to walk this journey with you. Somebody, you know, we we all struggle with the same sin, don't we? You can pretty much pick any Christian in this room and you know that we struggle with a sinful, self-exalting heart. And you say to somebody, I really want to break out of this. I want to honor God in my life. I want to begin to move forward rather than being stuck here in this tiny little dog-eat-dog world. And I want to move forward and I want to honor God and I want to progress. And that's only found through destroying the sinful, self-exalting heart. Find somebody else to walk this journey with as we struggle. And then learn to progressively put off anger by praying for a humble and submissive heart. God help me. How can we put this off without asking God himself? Learning contentment even if you don't get the things that you want. Learning patience towards people who provoke you. Learning self-control instead of responding angrily. Expose yourself to godly Christians who communicate in gracious ways. Learn and implement biblical peacemaking. Intentionally serve other people even if you think they don't deserve it. And just, just a final word of warning that obviously... If I begin to work on this sinful, self-exalting heart, if I begin to say, God help me not to love myself so much that I'm automatically sinning against other people and against you on a daily basis, that doesn't mean God's suddenly going to give me all the things I want, <laughs> does it? I mean, that's, that's the next form of idolatry, isn't it? I want to try and get rid of my self, sinful, self-exalting heart <coughs> so I can get what I want. No. We need to do this because it honors God. And a God-honoring life is a life of progress. Regardless of how slow you go in the rest of your life, if you honor God in every transaction with other people and with God, that's progress. That's moving forward. And God often blesses people who live with character and resolve in that way by his grace. So just in conclusion, we say, what is stopping you? What's stopping you and I from progressing? Is the sinful self-exalting heart. The Old Testament prophets showed how shocking, idiotic, irrational, and sad it is to pursue what you want in disregard for God. The New Testament shows that to love God and to love your neighbor sum up the law. But instead, we love ourselves, and we want what we want above what God wants or our neighbor's needs. When the sinful, self-exalting heart doesn't get what it wants, it becomes depressed or angry or anxious and responds in destructive ways. This way of life is painful and it drives you away from progress. The way out is to identify the source of your strong emotional struggles in the sinful, self-exalting heart and come to honor God in true submission, humility, and the resulting joy. Lord, thank you for your word that exposes things like this in our hearts. Lord, you know that we are so prone to raising ourselves up and like Satan himself, that if we we went so small, Lord, inside of us is the capacity to say, I will ascend to the throne of the Most High. We would even attempt to throw God off his throne if we had the power. And Lord, we pray that you would help us today to see that in ourselves, Lord, even as we look in the mirror and we say to ourselves, each one individually, 
to say, yes, I do have a sinful, self-exalting heart and a lot of what motivates me in this world is myself and my desires and my wants, my ideals, my own paradise that I'm building around me. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to to look at that and to come to you in repentance to see the, the terribleness of it. And Lord, come to you in repentance and and to begin this long journey of change. And I pray, Lord, that you would you would give each person in this church who embarks on this journey a beautiful, beautiful story of success and that their humility would be beautiful and delightful and that their lives would show progress and that others would see that as attractive and, and follow on. Lord, we just commend ourselves and our weakness into your hands, asking you these things in Jesus' lovely name. Amen.